1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, get subscribed, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. With all that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rub! Bad rub! Sir! Sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts, uh, folks, after, and, and this is a, a conservative estimate, one bazillion attempts to get <laughs> someone from the video game industry onto the show. We have finally made it happen. And uh, both Vespi and I are absolutely thrilled that this week's guest is the one who accepted. He's an industry veteran whose career in video games began over 20 years ago, a stretch in which he rose through the ranks at Obsidian Entertainment to become the director behind 2015's Pillars of Eternity, last year's critically acclaimed Pentiment, and last but certainly not least, 2010's Fallout New Vegas, which both Vespi and I, I think we've mentioned on the show before as being one of our favorite video games of all time. Mm -hmm. So this is a real treat for us. Uh, today, he's here to talk to us about 1979's The Dead Zone and maybe a bit about the 1983 David Cronenberg film It Inspired. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Josh Sawyer. Josh, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, we are delighted to be talking to mm. you. Uh, you are, one of our missions in doing the show was to kind of show off how all different kinds of uh, people that we're fans of, you know, in the entertainment industry have had their lives touched somehow by Stephen King. There's a lot of Stephen King fans out there. And for whatever reason... Everyone I have talked to from the gaming industry about coming on the show is like, eh, yeah, and I'll think on it. You know, like I'll I'll see if I can come up with a, a title I'd be I'd be interested in talking about. Never Weird. hear back from. Them. Yeah. Mm. So I'm curious <laughs> if you have any insight as to why I have been uh, cock blocked by the <laughs> games industry so heavily so far. That is honestly really surprising to me. I feel like. um you know, I'm in my late 40s now, and uh, I feel like there are a lot of other dudes, to be frank, in the game industry who grew up in the same era I did, which is Golden, golden yeah. King Zone. Like, right. you got so many adaptations, some good, some incredible, some very not good. But there's mm. a lot of Stephen King, uh, a lot of Stephen King work and a lot of adaptations. So I'm actually... I'm honestly surprised that it took you this long to get someone on. I'm probably just asking the wrong people. Could be. You know, one of those kind of things. <laughs> I, I would especially think like anyone in the narrative side of things or, you know, the yeah. actual storytellers in the gaming industry. But uh, admittedly, now that I'm thinking about this, I don't think I've talked 
or invited any of them on. Mm, so just inviting programmers on and they're like, yeah, <laughs> yes. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, he's only going to accountants at Nintendo for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I think there's one, like one that we keep getting asked about. And I, I honestly don't know, you know, Scott, if you've been able to reach out in any way, shape or form, uh, <clears throat> but it is Hideo Kojima, right? That's oh, I wouldn't even fuck. There's no uh, way we're getting Hideo on the show. Yeah, uh, he, he, <laughs> I'm sure he has I mean, opinions big... on Stephen King adaptations. But, but, I bet he does. <laughs> but he, yeah, but he like he tweets about King a lot, and he, you know, he's like besties with Guillermo. You know, Del Toro's come on the show and and all this stuff. So I, you know, I, theoretically we could have a a, hmm. a way in, in into Hideo's world, uh, which would be incredible. But uh, uh, so you drop. haven't reached out to him, right? So no, I that's haven't. not who you're talking about. Okay, maybe maybe hit Guillermo up and see what's going on over there. Maybe get a yeah, little, say yeah, hook your brother up, Guillermo. Damn, yeah, hook it up. Although we what? got Josh on, we don't need nobody else. Are you kidding me? That's true. Josh, come on now. Fallout New Vegas. Mm, I hello. I cannot tell you how important this this particular game was to me. Thank like, you. I I had never played any um, RPGs or. Mm. Really, I hadn't gotten in. I, I wasn't playing a lot of video games at this time in my life. I had grown up with a Nintendo and then a Genesis and then kind of pieced out until probably the end of the PS2, beginning of the PS3 era. You know, it was just mm-hmm. like life got in the way and it didn't become a, it wasn't a priority. And when I came back, some of the first games I played were Resident Evil 4, nice. uh, God of War nice. and Fallout 3 and was mm-hmm. just like, very cool. The first time I played Fallout 3, I walked into Megaton. And I know you didn't do this game, but uh, (laughs) just to illustrate how stupid I was at these games, I walked into a house in Megaton and stole an apple or something. And the person inside (laughs) saw me. And then I came out like I went out the door. And so, of course, the game auto saved when I went out the door. Sentence is death. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And everyone in the fucking town was attacking me. And I was like what like i didn't over an apple are you people crazy you know and i try to fight my way out of it and they just kept stomping my ass so i was like these games aren't for me and then about a year later i came back to it to give it another shot and fell in love with that kind of a game and Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter new vegas came out and frankly i think it's a it's i prefer it to um fallout 3 i prefer it to fallout 4 for being honest Um, thank you and I just, I'm, I'm delighted to have a chance to tell you thank you for making that game. Um, You're quite you, welcome. <laughs> do you have any aspirations to continue with the the Fallout franchise? I know there's, we're we're movie guys, so we don't really know as much about the video game business. But I I know that, you know, Obsidian is kind of over on one side, and then Bethesda's over here, like. Yeah, it's it's tricky because, um, you know, I've, I've said before, you know, I love the Fallout setting. Uh, I love sure. working in that world. Uh, it's not really up to me. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, you know, it's I'm not even a studio head. I'm a director. And so uh, there are things I want to do, but I don't get to do all the things I want to do. Right. Um, <laughs> I do. I do think that it is, you know, more. And this is the thing that everyone, you know, freaked out about is that because now Bethesda and Obsidian are both part of Xbox under Microsoft mm-hmm. uh, that it, it's, you know, like theoretically possible, but something being theoretically possible and actually right. probable are very far apart. Right. So, yeah, I mean like, yeah, I'd love to make another fallout game. I'm sure that'll be quoted somewhere for no reason. 
because it's meaningless. Um, right. No, you'll, yeah. get, you'll get aggregated on this show in all <laughs> likelihood. Yes. Well, you know, um, I hoped I hope to see you and your team one day back with that that franchise. I think that I I don't know. I just think New Vegas blew the doors off the thing so thoroughly. I, I would love to see y'all get another crack at that. And, Thank you. And what you would do with it. Um, I, I, I want to interject something real quick here that you did something in, in New Vegas that I kind of hope to see more often in uh, modern RPGs and I never do. And that's this thing where you can like how you deal with all the different factions, like has an outcome. Uh, it has like a direct in impact on what happens in the finale of the game right where if you if you make you can possibly make friends with all of them you can make enemies out of some and they won't show up to help you which will make the last thing level harder like it it seems like this era is like we're talking about new vegas we're talking about like maybe mass effect where they were doing really interesting things with um player choice and uh and i feel like the game industry at least in the triple a uh, sectors kind of pulled back from that. They've embraced the open world part, but like not the the choice part of it. Is that something you've noticed, or am I just uh, playing no. the most uh, basic <clears throat> bitch? <laughs> uh, I, I, th- I think you're. I think you're right. I think yeah. it's um, you don't you don't like accidentally do that. You really have to plan that out. Um, yeah. And there are some things you do during development where you kind of see a hap- a happy opportunity to like, oh, like we can have some reactivity here. But the big stuff usually that's a result of really long-term planning yeah um so if you're thinking about branching and reactivity and things like that those are really foundational to the design of the game and um it's one thing to say like you know we're like obsidian's good at it but to the extent that we're good at it it's because that's what we do like that's a big part and focus of our games so from the beginning we're having conversations about how we want to handle things like factions and replayability and being a huge asshole to everyone um, and getting away with it. And, um, you know, but there are sacrifices to that as well. Like, you know, um, production values, like for a triple a game, they're going to really lean heavily into production value. They have, you know, really, really super high quality cinematics and cutscenes, and their gameplay is incredibly polished. And it's kind of the, maybe not a running joke, but like role-playing games kind of are a little janky as a rule. Yeah, right. And um, you kind of accept that they're a little rough around the edges because there is a lot of flexibility and the focus really goes there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand it, you know, as the sort of spectrum of games expands, like I would say like 10 years ago, the the budgets for games were in this really narrow and weird space where they were, like pretty expensive so like a couple of you know people couldn't just do it on their own um but also they weren't really stratospheric and now because of many many reasons you have you know single individual people who are making games for less than a million dollars over many years or small teams that are doing things for a couple of million dollars and then you have you know games that are legitimately pushing well over 100 million in development costs and so that spectrum is really crazy, but but what it results in is usually, you know, as with any sort of big budget entertainment, um, the effort is going to go into the spectacle and the kind of wow factor, I think. So when you say open world, that's because that's a spectacle. Like you can look out over, you know, and this, this is nothing against games that do this, but like if you look at um, uh, Horizon Forbidden West, 
holy shit, like that game looks crazy. Um, And uh, yeah, so the more you focus on things like replayability and being able to break the game and recover and things like that, that's a lot of effort going into things that are not really spectacle-oriented, production-oriented. In fact, you're actually saying we accept that a lot of players are not going to see this bit of content Mm -hmm. because that's by design. Um, But that's still the thing that we work on here at Obsidian, and I know there are other companies that do it as well. Did you ever play any of the uh, computer games that they made out of Stephen King's stuff? Like there was a Dark Half game. There was a regret to inform you there was a running man game and a lawnmower man game oh lawnmower man game i think i was aware of but no i've not played any of them in the lawnmower man here's a here's a are are you familiar with the lawnmower man like the the movie of course i'm familiar with lawnmower man excellent i don't know i'm familiar with the works of the lawnmower we should have come to you with lawnmower man that would have been the (laughs) obvious choice but any anyhow um like in so in lawnmower man you you can choose between two characters one of them is Job, obviously. Sure. But this is something we found out in the course of doing the show because neither Vesper or I had played it. The other player character is the little boy's mom from the movie. How weird what? is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the first level, you fo- you fight like an Oldsmobile or something. That's like the boss. It's it's a cool. really, really weird thing. Worth looking up screen caps for. Very, uh, very entertaining. Um, but Stephen King also had something called F13 back in the game, uh, back in the day. Do you remember that? It sounds vaguely familiar, but no, I got to say, I don't remember it. Fair. You would not be wrong for not remembering it because it was basically a collection of screensavers, <laughs> like mini games with, uh, I think there was a copy of, uh, a short story that he was writing called the plant that was included with it or something. It huh. was like. It was like a, a Stephen King indie bu- bundle or something. You know, it was just nice. a bunch of stuff packed together and, uh, you know, um, didn't really make much of a dent as far as I can tell. That's another one where the screen caps are uh, very entertaining, but uh, probably more entertaining than playing the game itself. <laughs> but eh, I figured I'd ask. Well, let's start here. Let's uh, what is uh, your Stephen King origin story, sir? Um. So my brother was really really into stephen king i mean Mm -hmm. presumably still is um older brother older brother yeah he's eight years older than me my brother mark and um i remember well the true origin story was we were home alone and i must have been six or so maybe Mm -hmm. seven at the outside so this was 81 82 and I don't know, maybe we did have some sort of VCR, but we were watching The Shining. Mm-hmm. I should not have been watching The Shining, but we were. It was just, my parents were gone and my brother and I were watching The Shining. And um, I don't remember exactly what part it got to fairly late in the movie. And I looked over at my brother and he was... um like making a really crazy smile at me <laughs> Jesus! and he and i was like what like i don't remember how i was reacting but i like clearly he was like bothering me and like to freak you out yeah and then he started chasing me around the house with a knife oh. <laughs> <laughs> huh. 
Can and, you describe uh, the knife? Are we talking a big knife? A, a small this was knife? a steak knife. Oh. I mean, to me, it was enormous. It was like the biggest knife in our house. Um, or at least I remember it that way. Uh, I later almost cut my thumb off with that knife now that I think about it. Um, oh. But he, uh, yeah, he chased me around the house with the knife. And so forever the shining and my brother chasing me around the house <laughs> with the knife. But then um, later on, uh, my brother was super into horror in general, but he uh, like reading horror and horror movies. So later on, when uh, we were both a little older, I remember his room was always full of horror movie posters, but he got like every Stephen King book and he read like all of them. And I remember reading because I was more into fantasy at the time. So I read some of them when I was younger. And I remember reading Eyes of the Dragon just because I was like, oh, mm-hmm. here, this is kind of like a, a fantasy crossover. And then I read some of the short stories and things like that. Um, but we watched like, man, I feel like we watched like every single Stephen King adapta- movie adaptation um, growing up. And I loved them. And I still will watch like any of them. <laughs> Doesn't, yep. Quality does not matter. Let me add them. Well, what's your, just to get a, a barometer on this. Uh, what is your favorite King adaptation from that era versus what is your least favorite? My favorite adaptation is the dead zone. Nice. Um, least favorite from that generation. So we're thinking eighties, basically I'll 80s. go to mid nineties on this. What mm. the hell? Yeah. You know what? Like least favorite. What was it? What was in the night? I think lawnmower man was not great. Like, <laughs> it's entertaining. It's, pr- it's pretty not good, but it is entertaining. Right. The Undeniably thing is, like, so. Even the pretty bad ones. I still like, like, um, like is silver bullet. Re- I, Cause I read cycle of the werewolf. Uh huh. Is it a good movie? I don't know. I'll still watch it. It holds up. It I'll holds tell you up. That. Yeah. It's got some great moments in it. Um, it's got a kid in a wheelchair being propelled by a jet. It's got Gary Busey. What else do you need out of it? It's movie? got a Come lot on. of great stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know what? I can't really think of any where I think back and I'm like, no, I just don't like it. Um, even Maybe the ones we should that go f- further into the 90s. <laughs> sell. Sell. The answer Dream is sell. catcher. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I barely remember Dreamcatcher. Is and, there is there any particular um, lesson that you've taken away from King's writing that you have ever applied in in your role at Obsidian, like narratively or just structurally or anything like that? I mean, I do. I do always remember, and like, you know, I think I think to his credit, you know, Stephen King does sort of recognize that. Um, he has strengths and weaknesses um, mm-hmm. and wrapping things up is not usually his strong suit, but, <laughs> but he is really good at thinking of cool, like people in a crazy circumstance, like people in a crazy conflict that they need to get out of. Mm-hmm. And that thinking of that and something that's really compelling um, to the reader or the viewer, I think is super important, um, which I know maybe sounds simple, but like, you know, put people in peril in a a really sort of novel or interesting scenario. And then that can be like a great seed for a story. Um, Wrapping it up is obviously another challenge, but I do think that that, um, especially for something like horror, that's really fundamental, Mm -hmm. but I think it applies in general to just dramatic 
you know, constructing a dramatic arc, um, you know, you want to put people in some sort of conflict and some sort of peril. It doesn't have to be physical peril, but um, thinking about that, I think, can help sort of that can be a nice anchor point to structure things around. Right. Um, I have a question. So hypothetically, say I win the Powerball and I have all the money in the world sitting in my bank account and I come up and I come to you and I say, listen, I want Obsidian to make a Stephen King RPG. I want you to direct it. Where does your mind go? Mm. Would that even be feasible? Would that? How do you think that uh, King would translate into that world? And erase all the red tape from this yeah, question. Sure. Just, just imagine we can get the rights to anything. The money hose is, is unlimited and we can buy mm. off whoever's standing in our way, you know? Yeah, I mean, my maybe because of my um, inclination toward open world things and that sort of like, that sort of vibe, mm. uh, I immediately thought of like the Dark Tower mm-hmm. and and the inter- interconnectivity oh of, God. of things um, would could be like really cool. I mean, that sounds like a crazy game to make, but that's what my mind er- er- immediately went to. I think there are hor- like there are tons of stories of his that could translate to a more conventional kind of horror game. I will say that I'm not super conversant with horror games, but man, it is a um, it is a, a a genre with a extremely passionate fan base. And the thing is like I appreciate horror games even if I don't play them very often. Um just there's a there's a very clear connection to the cinematic right roots of horror and um but but the way that uh, game developers make the interactivity um a part of that I think is what heightens the really heightens the experience for people and and freaks them out. Yeah. So yeah, my own mind, just because I'm into like role-playing games and open world stuff and, and more fantastic things makes me think of the dark tower. Mm. Um, but I think there are tons of things that if you, if you gave it to a, a studio that really focused on, on kind of like horror games and those experiences, there are tons of stories that could be really awesome. Mm. You just gave like the exact answer that both of us were probably hoping to hear. <laughs> <laughs> like we are huge Dark Tower nerds, and awesome. you know, Vespi in particular is is mentioned on the show on a number of occasions. Like how how badly he wants to see someone, you know, yeah. do a do a, a, a an RPG set in Midworld, and That'd the mind sick. just reels at such a thing. Hey, but there's just so many possibilities, especially oh, since dude. you know, like, you know, like like Scott, I was you know introduced to the world of rpgs through fallout so it's like when you look at the humor in that series when you look at the kind of the post-apocalyptic angle the the close to our reality but not really our reality mm-hmm. you know how it melds genre it just feels like an easy fit you know to to this all the sensibilities that we like you know i think the other thing that makes my mind drift towards it is because um i'm a very visual person um and Michael Whalen's art yeah. for the Dark Tower is so incredible. And Michael Whalen also has done a huge amount of incredible fantasy art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so that overlap for me is like, you know, it, it, my mind goes there very, very quickly and easily just because uh, I've always thought his work is really inspirational. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had, had that guy on the show. On the show. Yeah. yeah, we had him on the yeah. show once. He's a, he's a oh, wow. real sweetheart, that guy. Awesome. Like, yeah. And just as just as much of a nerd for this shit as as any of awesome. us are, you know, mm-hmm. which is like a real cool thing. It would have sucked if we got that dude on and it was like, 
Yeah, I don't know. It was something about a cowboy and eh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. That's always the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just did it. I was eating a sandwich at the time, and you're like, fuck, dude. <laughs> well, here's hoping that someday someone wins the Powerball and comes to you with that exact exact same request. <laughs> yeah. We can we could do a whole episode where it's just like, all right, so let's pitch this out. Let's let's brainstorm this out of, of what this is. But we're not going to put you through that through. I wish through I w- no, I wish I had asked Josh uh, when I DM'd him about doing the show. Like uh, my first question should have been, have you read The Dark Tower? <laughs> and, and that would have been the shape of this thing. But I don't know. Well, maybe maybe if Josh has a good time somewhere up the road, we'll uh, we'll tackle that. But yeah, for yeah. now. Um, if we don't piss you off, definitely come back and we'll do like a whole bonus fantastic. episode just about like talking through what would the ideal Dark Tower RPG be. Oh, I've already got 50 pages of notes in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so um, your your chosen title is The Dead Zone. Um, a, a bit more of a, a somber, less uh, horrific, I would argue, or, or super, less supernatural, I should say. Uh, horror title from king uh for for anyone who hasn't seen it or read the the novel could you describe the plot uh yeah there's there are some differences between um between the novel and the film Mm -hmm. uh i think it's a really interesting adaptation that david cronenberg did because it really cuts out a lot of the stuff from the novel which is like the novel is fantastic but um the adaptation i think is great uh so yeah it's about this guy johnny smith Mm -hmm. um a thing they don't have in the novel is that he, he suffers like a weird event as a kid where he, uh, I think it's like an ice skating accident or something. And um, he basically has like a, a vision of someone dying and then they die. And he's like, wow, that's crazy. Um, and <laughs> life goes on and uh, he winds up in a terrible accident as an adult. He's a school teacher. He gets in a terrible accident and he is in a coma for, uh, four years in the book, five years in the film, and he wakes up and the woman that he was in love with has moved on with her life and uh, he can barely use his legs. Um, and in addition to that, he has these crazy like headaches and he starts having visions and the visions are uh, when he touches people, he sees things from their past or their future. Um, he knows things that he has no reason to know. Um, and he starts to realize that he can see, not only see, but also influence the future. And, um, it is, uh, not something he likes <laughs> and he's pretty bummed out about his life. And, uh, he kind of tries to move on with life living more or less as a recluse, uh, because he really hates the quote unquote gift he's been given. And, mm-hmm. uh, but nope, of course that's not where it ends. So, but that's the, the basic premise of it. Um, and he gets wrapped up in some other crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. So what what was it about what is it about this title that like this is the title that you would have picked on on this show above any other? I I want to say that I've probably seen it more than any other King adaptation. I hmm. I might be wrong, but I really have watched it and rewatched it a lot, and I think my appreciation for it has grown over time. I think when I was a kid um the soundtrack, I still think the Michael Kamen soundtrack is just so mm-hmm. good. The main theme is just incredible. The love theme is really good. Um, and just Christopher Walken's performance, uh, unsurprisingly, is fantastic. Um, 
But I think that as I've become older, I think that the reason why I really gravitate towards it, and I think it's a fan, it's a it's a fantastic adaptation and also a uh, an interesting movie for Cronenberg because the relationship between um, Johnny and Sarah is surprisingly normal <laughs> for Cronenberg. Um, it is. They're they're Johnny and he is a very sweet guy. He is like a very kind person. He's they have a very youthful, um, innocent love for each other, and uh, that gets wrecked. And so it's and Cronenberg really I think deals with that in a, in a really touching way. And going back and watching it, I I I rewatched it last year and then I re rewatched it like three days ago. Um, and, uh, like they're really messed up. Like Johnny and Sarah are both really upset about the loss of the love that they had and that time robbed, robbed them of this. And, um, and the heart, the heart of the whole story is, is this love story. I mean, I'm going to say a spoiler here, but like the, the end of the film, the last thing Johnny says, he says to Sarah as he is dying, he says goodbye. And she says, I love you. And then the credits roll. Like that's really at the heart of the whole story. And so, yeah, in a way it's kind of horror. It's kind of a thriller, but I really thought, I really think that the characters at the heart of it are very interesting and their love story is very complicated. And I love that that's kind of what propels Mm. everything forward. You make a good point there in it's, it's an odd uh, relationship at the center of this thing. I should be really pissed off at them for, you know, cheating on that, that poor girl's husband. Right. You know, yeah. she's got a kid, you know, all this stuff, but there's also this thing where it's like, well, it, it wasn't like they broke up. It's like they're, they're especially for Johnny, like his, their, their relationship is just as fresh and new and yeah. what it should have been like, you know, you want uh, them to the be week together. before. And now he, it's a whole different thing. And she obviously still has feelings, you know, for him. So it's like, it's this weird, complicated thing where it's like, not that you can call dibs on, on love, <laughs> but you know, it, it feels like, you know, that, that, you know, you should be angry at somebody in the situation and you're not, you know, but I do kind of feel bad for her kind of doofus husband. Although I shouldn't since he's the one that's uh, super hardcore into uh, Greg Stilson. So maybe very maybe, true. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a red flag that she's so deserved it. But fuck that guy anyway. <laughs> yeah. never mind. I've talked myself out of it. You know, they, they should, they should uh, have as much affair as, as possible. Fuck that guy. Well, to your point, you want these characters to be together. You can tell yeah. that they want to be together and, circumstances have put them in this situation where that can't be. And you know, that's that, that sort of like yearning and longing, like who doesn't fucking understand that? I always remember two scenes in particular. One is uh, right before the accident when he drops her off and he goes to, he goes to leave and it's raining and Sarah just says, wait. And she like runs out in the rain to kiss him and says like, I'm crazy about you, which is so corny. <laughs> like, but, but it, 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 it just shows how like earnest they are. Um, it should be so corny, but it's very believable from these characters. And then um, also when she first goes to visit Johnny after he, when he's re- rehabilitating and he's, you know, like he said, he's like, this is just like the next day for yeah. me. Like, for you five years past for me, it's like nothing. Um, and he's kind of laughing it off. He kind of has this gallows humor and then she leaves 
and you know she's saying like don't look at me like that like you know basically mm. trying to discourage him but she drives away and there's a scene that Cronenberg has where the scene is literally her driving it just shows her car pulling up to a stop sign and she's just bawling inside she's just crying mm. and can't stop crying and then she like drives off and it's like yeah <laughs> like she is really really severely like upset about what happened um right. But yeah, I don't know. I always those two scenes always always stick in my head. You you raise a, a a very good point in that this is uncommon for Cronenberg this kind of a relationship. Oh yeah, mm. you know, no one involved is turning into a monster, or <laughs> no, no one, one has involved. a sack where there shouldn't be a sack. Yeah, there's or an no, open no wound, violence. an <laughs> open <laughs> wound <laughs> that the other person is having <laughs> sex with, or but like like traditionally in Cronenberg films. Um, you're, if there's a relationship in it, it's, it's toxic on some level, yeah. you know, there's some sort of like fucking poisonous shit going on in there. There's, there's not that it's very wholesome. You know, I, I think that outside of the score, which immediately announces it as a Cronenberg jam, I think, I think came and worked with him on a number of things. Um, and, right. and, um, the chilliness of it. Which you might ascribe to, you know, how wintry it is. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's also emotionally kind of chilly. Um, beyond those and the scissor suicide. I yeah, don't think that's I... That's a Cronenberg. Yeah, oh yeah, very Cronenberg. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's like... if you sh- Even if you showed me it as is and I had no idea, I don't know that I would be able to pick it out of a, a lineup. As a Cronenberg picture, hmm. it just yeah. doesn't. It just the doesn't only, have all the, the only, symptoms. The only thing about it that really feels Cronenbergy to me is the pacing, mm-hmm. um, because I've I've been I've been rewatching a lot of Cronenberg lately, and man, he just he's like I got a story to tell, and we're not waiting. Like we are getting through it. Um, uh, and I, you know, like I'm not going to say that I don't think Dead Zone is like super short or anything like that. Mm. But like it moves along like there's if you think about it, like there's a lot of there's like a lot of stories and sub stories that are told in there um, because there's the whole Castle Rock killer thing in between everything. And it still really clips along pretty quickly. And like I said, when it ends and this is more of like an older movie thing in general, but I was just struck by like, yeah, when it's over, it's like, (laughs) yeah, bye (laughs) credits. Like we're not lingering on this. Like we're done. The movie's over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's that is something that happened in that era. Like it, it's so funny showing movies like uh, an American Werewolf in London to somebody oh, yeah. <laughs> who's never seen it and is just used to modern movies having the that decompression time. And th- it's a shock. It's such a shock to people. It's like, oh nope, Werewolf's dead. Movie's over. Cut to credits. That's it. There's no, there's no. Uh, you know, I'm gonna go back home and like Samwise Gamgee and you know sigh, look over my life and carry my kids into the in my hobbit hole you know there's no decompression it's just like all right we're done we're done with this shit it's time to go not to go off on too much of a tangent but i was very entertained i recently watched the charles bronson film the mechanic (laughs) and the way that ends is like basically a guy gets screwed (laughs) over and he like reads a note and he's like yeah you're fucked 
and then his car explodes. They don't even wait for the explosion to finish. It's <laughs> mid-explosion. They freeze frame. Credits. I'm like, wow, you are done. Like, the movie is over. Get out. The, anyway. Yeah, it's funny we're mentioning... It's funny we're talking about this uh, because the last time I... I didn't rewatch for this episode. Um, but the last rewatch I did, I... I was reminded all over again, like every time I watch this movie, I'm stunned when it ends because it feels like there should be another 10 minutes, like, like Mm -hmm. wrapping up loose ends. And it's like, no, it's just as you said, we're out, we're done. No more for you. That's a thing you don't see anymore. Compare, you know, compare and contrast with like, you know, (laughs) fucking these studio blockbusters. that have like three post credit scenes. Fuck you. Yep. I'm not, I'm not, I can't be expected to sit through this. I just sat through a two hour movie. Come on now. Even something like, uh, you know, Dr. Sleep, like there's a lot of chilling out after, <laughs> yeah. after things wrap up. It's like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna wind down from this. What do you, um, what do you make of that? Just on a storytelling level? Do you have a, you know, you know obviously I- taste change, but why? in this in this context you know what, what that, do you that is a really that? good question i don't know like maybe that's a better a question for people who are like maybe 20 years older than me um hmm. you know like because like you said it was it was really pretty common in uh older films where like we're done and it's kind of like the, the dramatic arc is finished and the decompression is like you going home i don't like i don't i, I really yeah. don't know like you're in the theater get up and get out um that's a really great question. But yeah, I do think that it's, um, you know, it's something like uh, I noticed with, maybe it's just a cultural thing. Like I noticed something with Japanese game and film trailers where uh, the pacing to me is like really crazy mm-hmm. where it's like trailer, it's done. And I'm like, it's done. No, we're not. Here's another part of a trailer. And I'm like, what? Like I thought we were, we're not finished. And there's like another thing. And then they're like, we're done now. Okay. Now we're done. Nope. There's another thing. <laughs> and it's not abnormal. That's just kind of how they're structured. And it right. really weirds me out. And I think it's probably just like a cultural convention of that place in that time. And so I think like older films, it was just kind of like, you know, the car is blowing up. You don't need to see the end of it. Credits. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so ingrained uh what you're talking about that like a few years ago when um i guess it was after netflix got into you know the original programming game mm-hmm. because this is the i mean this is at, at the very least the first time i took note of this but they were you know trailers run two and a half minutes you know industry mm-hmm. standard right um but netflix was like nah Fuck y'all. We don't do things industry standard over here, baby. We're Netflix and we got money to spend. So guess what? Two minute, 55 second trailers. And it, and it was like, you're watching these things and you're like, how, how much of this movie are they going to show? I feel like I'm watching yeah. an hour of it. It's incredible. Like how if you grew up with two to two and a half minute trailers, like a three minute trailer feels like a slap in the face somehow. It's wild. You know? it's, it's, it really it's, is. I think also like um, it's weird for me. There are so many movies I love from the eighties and nineties and I'm talking to younger people that I work with and I'm like, Oh yeah, you got to check this out. And then I go to find a trailer and I'm like, Oh man, 
voiceover in the trailer. This is so fucking corny. Like, um, <laughs> I, I love, I love needful things. Mm-hmm. I love that adaptation. And, um, I, the trailer has like this really very typical of the nineties voiceover. And I'm like, I can't link someone to this. Like yeah. I can't mm-hmm. link someone 10 years younger than me, this trailer, <laughs> Because mm. they're just going to write it off immediately because, right. but that's how it was done forever. There were just, yeah. there were voiceovers in trailers, even through the early two thousands. And then they were like, no, we're not doing it anymore. Yeah. I'm in pretty sure I've seen more than one doc, like a, like a documentary about voice trailer guys. Oh yeah. Yeah. That just like, that is, you know, I'd never really examined that until you, until you just said it, but yeah, that shit has very much died out. And it, in the it town did... of Castle Rock. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then like, you know, Pierre Gent is playing and like, um, <laughs> and they, they, um, and it really, the genre didn't matter. Like, you know, the, uh, I love Miller's crossing and it's got this real corny voiceover in the trailer. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> Miller's Crossing for real. And I'm like, why is that? But it was every movie was like that. Um, and every trailer rather was like that. It's, it's just, yeah, I think it's just a convention thing. And, and how pacing is done and taste change. And I grew up with that stuff, but even now, if I go back to it, I'm like, this is weird. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't weird when it came out and I was like 10 years old, but now it's super weird to me. Do you think that if the dead zone as it exists right now, like the Cronenberg version, if we wiped everyone's memory and drop that in theaters right now, what do you think the reaction to it would be? You know, it's not, I'm trying to think if there's like any special effects in it at all. I think it, it, it's, it holds up, you know, it, it really doesn't come across as a horror movie. It comes across more as a thriller with a love story at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the performances are really strong across the board. The soundtrack is great. Um, I think that people, I think that people would like it. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm very obviously very biased. Cause I came on here saying, yay, dead zone is the best. Yeah. Uh, I- I think it depends on the trailer that you cut to oh, advertise certainly. it. I, I think the way that if it was me in this hypothetical situation, I would focus a little bit on the, with the current, like just obsession with true crime shit. I would focus oh, a little yeah. bit on how this character uses that mm. to help solve a murder. Yes. All right. Killer. And even though that's, you know, I mean the movie <laughs> and the book obviously, but the movie itself like kind of accentuates the structure of the book where it does feel slightly like an anthology, you know, like there it's very segmented in, you know, in in these little, little, you know, now Johnny's going to teach, teach this kid and, you know, warn him about the, you know, going ice skating, you know, it's like now Johnny's going to help solve a murder. And now Johnny's going to, you know, figure out what's going on with this crooked politician. That's going to blow up the world. You know, it's uh, (laughs) a, it's a really kind of odd in that way where it's, it's segmented, but it doesn't feel like it while you're watching it. But once you start examining it, you're like, it really is odd how it is so compartmentalized throughout, you know? Yeah. I, and that was something I was thinking about where, again, I was thinking about Cronenberg's pacing and how it's typically pretty brisk. And then I'm like, man, there's a lot of stories here. There's like before the accident, you go through the accident, you're rehabilitating, um, the lady, the nurse, the Nazi segment, <laughs> the, uh, uh, sorry, the castle rock killer. And, and then the kid that I'm tutoring. And then 
Um, and I just, I'm like, God, there's a lot of stuff in here and he packs it all in pretty quickly. Um, I will say the other thing I really like is how, how, well, usually, you know, when he touches someone that something's going to happen, but how things kind of come out of nowhere. Um, like, you know, he's tutoring, I can't remember the kid's name, Mm. but he's tutoring the kid. Bartholomew. And then the, um, the, the Sarah's husband knocks on the door and then Sarah comes up and he's, and Johnny's like, yeah, okay, cool. Well, see ya. And then as soon as he closes the door, he's like extremely upset at having just seen Sarah. Mm-hmm. And so there's this emotional moment and you're like, oh man, and he's, and he hugs the kid cause he's just mm-hmm. so overwhelmed. And then it transitions to this hard, like, actually the kid's dead underwater. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Cronenberg, you did it again. Um, <laughs> anyway, that was just sort of a tangent. I just remembered loving that part. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking? I think we need to cut off where he says Dragula. Mm. And we'll say mid roll ad. What do you think of that? I like Ooh, that. That's a good we'll, idea. We'll, yeah, we'll uh, discuss uh, that later. But uh, <laughs> this is the mid roll ad read, and I am here to tell you about this week's sponsor, which is the good folks at Lumi Labs, who are championing a little thing called microdosing. That's right. We're talking about taking a THC gummy throughout the day that will keep you mellow, but not so impaired that you couldn't say host a podcast. Uh, or carry on a conversation with your boss. These Lumi Lab gummies have been a godsend for both me and Vespi. Uh, he's got trouble sleeping. Lumi Lab's gummies have been a big help towards getting him onto uh, a normal sleep schedule. And uh, for me, I just uh, I like the feeling of being a little high at all times. You know, it's it's not more complicated than that. But yes, they do help uh, when I take them at bedtime, and you will wake up without that. Uh, you know, sort of synthetic weed hangover that you get on like, say, D8s or whatever. If you if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, Lumi Labs gummies are aimed at helping you to relax and they work. The best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't impacted by your state's marijuana laws because they are a synthetic THC strain. That's right, Texas. You can get them delivered straight to your door and we have. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Very well done, Scott. I think we should probably dip back into this nifty conversation we were having with Mr. Uh, Josh Sawyer. What do you Let's think? Let's do it. I mean, that's a fucked up thing with that power, you know, they give you and you're never going to like it, I'm trying to think the only happy vision we actually see him have in the whole movie is when he uh, is when he uh, stops Stilson at the end. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to think everything else is, is fucking tragedy. I, I know in the book it's that's different because in the book he goes around and like he's like politician stalking a little bit like they say he like shakes like jimmy carter's hand and sees he's gonna be a president <laughs> and a good one you know and like you know and that so it's like there's there's a few people that he he meets like okay you're gonna be okay and then he he shakes stilson's hand it's like oh well here, here we got Oops. we got a you know we got a, a american hitler on the rise you know yeah 
I guess arguably you could say, but he's very upset by it. The the thing with um Doctor Weezak turns out to be that's true. Kind of a good thing, but when it happens, he's so overwhelmed by it that he's very upset. So you say yeah, not you, a lot uh, of great visions. You you mentioned a moment ago that you've been revisiting Cronenberg lately. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, like, I don't I, I don't want to derail this into a uh, every every time we talk about this movie, it just turns into like me, Vespi and the guests just going round and round about our favorite Cronenberg movies for an hour. Um, <laughs> the so I'm going to try to avoid doing that while also asking you the question, like, what's your what's your favorite on on this rewatch that you're doing? Also, I have a follow up question to this, so I'm I'm probably doing a bad job of what I just said. I've tried to. <laughs> you know, I need the thing is I'm I'm making my way through. Geez, a favorite. Um, maybe it's Dead Ringers. Mm. Dead Ringers is good. It's so crazy. They're doing that new series on Amazon. That's I just saw shit. that. That's wild. I know. I don't know what the tone tight. is supposed to be because the tone of the commercial was kind of cheeky and i'm like what is going on here um they know exactly what they're doing yeah um, you got you got two rachel weiss's they're fucking <laughs> they're they're weird as shit they're doing weird gyne- gynecological stuff like they they know exactly what they're doing with that trailer like and i was i was hyped i think that whatever's going on tonally with that trailer i'm like yeah i'm responding to that let's let's have more of that please i but, do uh, Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say enough. probably of of the more recent ones that I've seen, um, history of or not history of violence. I do, although I do like that Eastern yeah. Promises. Yeah, I went really? back and I was like, damn, man, that's, I, uh, wild. I only saw that one the one time, and I think I need to give it another shot because whenever I get in like a a Cronenberg rewatch uh, era, as as the kids mm-hmm. might say, um, I, I I tend to avoid the ones that I'm not like super hot on mm-hmm. and Eastern promises of one where like I saw it and I was like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great movie. I don't probably ever again. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to imagine watching that very, very often, but, uh, but I am curious about your, your thoughts on existence. Oh mm. yeah, that I definitely need to rewatch existence. Um, it's, it's like if on the right, I, I know this is, this will be heresy to, to some of the Cronenberg, fans out there you know this man has made some of the greatest movies ever um and and i know existence is like like a b-side for cronenberg but it man every time i see that movie it rises up in estimation in my mind to to the point where now i'm like this may just be my favorite cronenberg movie wow you know i i love it so so much um but if you haven't rewatched it recently, you know. No, I haven't. Like, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it since it came out. I remember oh, loving it God. when it came oh, out. But yeah, so it's been 20-something yeah. years. I mean, it, it's going to... I don't know if there, anything can beat the fly for me. It's just that's the... Like, it's the... I don't know. It's, it's a perfect movie of its time, you know? It's a movie oh, absolutely. I, I love going back to. It's a movie that means a lot to me, you know, from my younger years. Mm-hmm. So even... Even going like he could make his masterpiece now and it still it wouldn't matter because I you know, wouldn't have the as long of the uh Can't just attachment the to it as I, as I do that. But uh I, the brood is is one of his earlier ones that I, I oh, went yeah. back to recently 
and was just like, oh, cool. I liked it a lot when I saw it the first time. And now it's like, oh, no, this is this is like top tier, like top five Cronenberg for me. So I'm a big fan of Videodrome. I like yeah, the fly. So uh, you know, um, I'm looking over the filmography now. I'm trying to I'm trying to find one that I can I can beat existence with. I mean, I think Videodrome is a better is a is a a more well-known and more iconic movie than than existence. Hmm. So is the fly. So is dead ringers. Yeah. Not a lot of people even crash. I, I love crash so much. I have a friend who is obsessed with crash. It's like her favorite movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is a cool friend. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, 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 it's impossible to, to pick one, I think, but someone hey, brought you know up. What? Sorry. The, uh... I, 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 oh. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, because it came up recently, someone on someone on Twitter, you know, there's like all these, um, you know, memes going around and people were like, name it or like, what director do you think had like a perfect run of like four movies? Right. And I'm looking and yeah, I remember being like The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, Dead Zone, The Fly, Dead Ringers and Naked Lunch. <laughs> That's a run. That is a run, dude. That is. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> and you know what? The really good news is, I don't know if you've been paying attention to Brandon Cronenberg, but this I, guy, I think he's got the goods. I think he's like, you know, this, it it feels when I'm, every time I'm watching a Brandon Cronenberg movie, I think this feels very Cronenberg and it also feels more modern. Hmm. It feels, it feels to me like in a very significant way that he is picking up the torch from his father, which I bet he would squirm and not be happy to hear, but that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that lightly, you know, like I, if some writer, musician, uh, uh, director's, uh, kid came up behind them, like I'm, I'm leveling a lot of skepticism at that person because, you know, I'm naturally going to assume that they've got a, a toehold in the industry. You know, uh, I feel I feel that way about Joe Hill, um, King's son, who's written some fucking amazing horror novels. And and I definitely feel that way about Brandon Cronenberg. I think he's I think he's got the juice. And I think Infinity Pool, that new one he's got out, uh, is like the closest we have seen him do yet to classic, you know, David Cronenberg. Your thoughts, gentlemen, please. I sadly have not seen any of his films. Hmm. Oh my lord. You're gonna you're gonna enjoy those. If you like Cronenberg, you'll like these. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Infinity Pool yet, but uh, uh oh saw the God. one he did before that, and yeah, it definitely has the notes of his dad, but like a little bit more punk or something. You know what I there's just something yes. a little bit more off center. It's more modern. It it feels like it's got it's got a it's got a more youthful sensibility to it somehow. Like right. if you, if you sat me down in front of one and we're like, all right, point out whenever that happens, I would have a hard time doing that, but I can feel it overall. Right. And, and I think infinity pool is the, the best example of that. And since you gentlemen have not seen it, uh, I will recommend it to both of you and our, our audience. Like that movie is fucked up. Like I watched it and was like, <laughs> ugh. I don't know if I want to see that again anytime soon. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it and watched it again about two days later and was like, uh, Jesus Christ, this thing is amazing. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's really something. 
And I, I think I think he's maybe one or two more movies away from like delivering something that just puts him on the map big time. You know, we're we're watching the formation of of this guy, Cronenberg's own son, becoming the new Cronenberg. That's my that's my read. Of Do you think he situation. has a dead zone in him, though? Like because the because that's the thing that I don't know. Cronenberg he's pretty... did so well as he started being like, oh, I'm gonna be you know. Canadian punk, you know, I'm going to be <laughs> a little, little uh, weird. I'm going to do things my way. You know, Scanners is oddly dull through like a lot of it. And then mm-hmm. it, then it, you'll hit a scene where it absolutely isn't, you mm-hmm. know, but he was like just doing things his way. And then he did the dead zone, which is just like a great, you know, mainstream, you know, studio picture just done with care and, all, all the talents that he brought to bear on his uh, wackier earlier stuff. So do you think Brandon Cronenberg has a a dead zone or a fly in him where he could do something that hits he definitely has a fly. mainstream? But yeah. I, I don't think of fly in the same way that the fly is grotesque, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a that's a, a common element in David Cronenberg's stuff. Um. My my answer to this is so fucking convoluted. I cannot imagine Brandon Cronenberg doing the dead zone, but I can't imagine him doing a dangerous method, which is like mm. a late stage David Cronenberg movie that jettisons. Uh, uh, I would say all of the grotesquerie. There's some like light S&M stuff in there, uh, but it's. I mean, first of all, it's hot, but it's also like, you know, it's a period piece. So it's not like, you know, there's no leather daddies in uh, a dangerous method. Right. <clears throat> um, I think Brandon Cronenberg could do that. I don't think he would be interested in it. But I also think I classify dangerous method sort of in the same way that I classify the dead zone for David Cronenberg in the sense that it doesn't have the typical bells and whistles that a David Cronenberg thing has, but it's, it's still got like an underlining charge to it. Mm. So my ultimate answer is yes. That was a really stupid way of putting all <laughs> of that. <laughs> but, but it's, that's, uh, that's me walking you through my thoughts on it. No, no, it, it tracks. It makes sense. Are you a, are you a walking fan in general, Josh? Oh Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> um, geez. I mean, I, uh, you like, know, give me I mean, your top I, shelf walking top shelf walking. Now I'm going to look, cause he's been in a million things. Mm. Hold on. Yeah, a lot of them. Not very good. True. He's, he's been in some, he's been, he's been in a lot of things, but a lot of them are, Oh uh, my God. You know what? I just recently last year for the first time, King of New York. Holy mm. shit. Yeah. I've never seen that one. Oh, oh. my God. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, like I, it's, it's good. It's one of those movies I've seen clips from, but never, never really got around to, but I love fucking, I, I love walking to death. No. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure I would love it. It's just a thing I haven't gotten around to yet. Um, he's, uh, he's still got it. You know, I mean, he's in, What's well, a severance, right? Oh, and that's, he's excellent in that, and he's so good in it. And he's, but, but he, what he's, what's great about him is that he hit this, I don't know, this 15, 20 year patch where, yeah, where he was just 
being Christopher Walken in quotes, you know, in things. Mm -hmm. And even that was better than most people, you know. Uh, But what makes the Dead Zone so interesting is like, this is still like, walk in before he like becomes the the joke of himself you know um and but what i felt like he hit this like patch where he was doing his best christmas you know all of his indie stuff that he would show up they would pay him like a million bucks and he would show up and shoot for three days and they would you know just shoot him like you shoot a, a bunch of stuff to cover the entire movie like pepper him in like in that post pulp fiction era um, you know, I'm thinking things like pool hall junkies and and uh, uh, indie movies like that, you know, where he was we, he would always have a monologue and it would always be something weird. And he would like say something like lion, like really weird somewhere, you know, <laughs> um, you know, uh, he, he had that that run. And now I think it was right around Catch Me If You Can, where he was like, oh, you know what, guys, I'm still just this fucking amazing actor, you know, beneath the the persona and you know i'm just going to mm-hmm. double down on that and uh he still does his walking shtick from time to time but uh uh but what i love that in at this stage in his career that he's he's just kind of going back to being uh just a great character actor yeah he's mellowed out a little bit yeah toned it down a little i like that he's great in severance for sure yeah i always even though his it's a completely non-speaking role but um as the Hessian from Sleepy Hollow is yeah. just fantastic. Oh yeah. Deer um, Hunter. And, He's great. In oh, that. Deer Hunter. Just unbelievable. Like that movie is just incredible and his performance is so good. It's wild. Yeah. So I what tend to, uh, even, even that small role he had in Annie Hall is so, hmm. so funny. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. <laughs> but yeah, I tend, I tend to be kind of a classic, a classic walk-in guy. Do you ever see a uh, communion? Yeah, I mean, not all. I saw it when it came out. Yeah, yeah, that uh, it like randomly popped up last year. I think on like Prime, maybe. But I had only seen it once, many years prior. It was, it was, if I, if I know my shit correctly, it was hard to find. I think for a bit. I think it went out of print on DVD. No one gives a shit about communion, you know. (laughs) And then they, then they, uh, they threw it on. I think it was Prime. Uh, Listeners don't crucified me if i'm wrong on that but um it is the weirdest fucking thing it's an adaptation of the whitley schreiber novel that is about his experiences like an allegedly true story about him being abducted by aliens and for i don't know for for most of the movie walkins kind of you know doing scared and confused you know but you get like that opening half hour in that movie where he's still in walk-in mode and like there's the the first scene i think of in communion beyond like all the bizarre fucking shit that goes on in that movie you know which is a lot uh is there this very early scene it only lasts for about 30 seconds and it's just a shot of him as striber in his office like Kind of, it looks like he's writing, but sort of fucking around and putting off the chore of it. And so he's trying on different hats in his office in front of the computer and like talking to himself. This goes on for, again, 30, 45 seconds uninterrupted. And then that's it. That's the end of the scene. (laughs) It's, 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 it's worth seeing just for him trying on these different hats for no reason, uh, just being like a concentrated dose of, of walking movie is not that good. 
otherwise. I always remember that and fire in the sky came out pretty well, not right. super close, but like yeah. it was alien abduction time. Mm-hmm. I remember my dad was super into it. Cause my dad is like, he's on the alien abduction hype train. Um, <laughs> He's but uh, yeah, I worked. This family. is when I worked. I yeah. worked in a video store. I remember when Communion came out on VHS. I think so. I was like, I remember it on the shelf. I can picture it where it was. Let's not also forget Weapon of Choice, which is probably the most iconic thing Walken's ever done. <laughs> uh, I was yeah. obsessively listen listening to that uh, when that came up and watching that that video over and over again. And that was in the early days of the internet being a place like the height of like uh, LimeWire and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and Napster and all that stuff. And so I, I think I like downloaded the, the video and it took me like a day and a half to download a video of, <laughs> of that. And it was like 16 bit graphic. It looked yep. like, you know, just is all blocky and whatnot. And it was the size of a postage stamp and it was the coolest thing ever. And technology was a wonder and a marvel. And, you know, how, how did we get so lucky? <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we typically talk about in relation to this title, whenever mm. we have someone on uh, for it, is, you know, what what you would do, Josh, with with this power, if you had it, would oh, you um, how do you like, how would you respond? Do you think you would? There's a version of this where you're just pulling it out as a party trick and you're not doing anything with it. There's another version where you're you're trying to be a hero. There's another version where you just don't touch anyone ever again, like fucking rogue in the X-Men or some shit like you don't want to, <laughs> you know, you don't want to you don't want to have that feeling like where do you where do you feel like you would fall on that spectrum? I think it would drive me nuts. Like I for real, like I I overthink everything with no powers at all. Um, and I think it would drive me crazy. I think I'd go the rogue route. I think that all like all the sort of extrasensory things, whether, whether it's sort of like precognition or um, even thinking about, you know, um, Sookie from True Blood, knowing what everyone's thinking. Mm. No, thank you. Like, I think that would actually, oh, that be would be awful, awful. Um, and knowing the future and like just from touching people and knowing that there are potential ways, potential ways to change it, but not being aware of exactly how. And of course, the collateral damage from doing that, you know, like whether it's butterfly effect or just like, you know, whatever, I think that would drive me absolutely crazy. Like, I don't know if I could live with it. I'd be, it'd be like the, uh, you know, the end of um, minority report where they just put me in a little cabin (laughs) out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So like, just don't touch me. I'm going to be over here. Um, Are you, are you married? No. Okay. So, uh, okay. So you're giving up a sex life permanently. I guess so. Are you moving? Like, are you going to try it? Like, <laughs> are you going into work every day with like gloves and a raincoat and a I scarf and a hat? I don't know. Like, how I, are you I, managing this? I feel, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could like continue. I mean, this will sound grim, but like, I don't know if I could continue with normal life. Like, <laughs> because, you know, there's an implication there that if I have this power, that implies a lot of other things about reality in the universe and metaphysics and i think it would fuck me up (laughs) well hold on elaborate on that please well i mean so there's well one it it indicates that there is there are sort of consequential causal chains that exist but can be manipulated right that right away immediately is like okay like things we theorize about are not real are now real and this is the way that it works um 
and then would make me think about how that how that makes me think about the nature of the world and is it created or not created is are there powers or higher powers where does this come from i would like i'm already overthinking this and it's not real <laughs> like i think it would just drive me i don't know even if it didn't drive me crazy it would completely alter like just the way that i think about hmm like i don't think i'd be like oh that's crazy i have this i'm going to keep making video games like i don't think <laughs> i don't think like I would, I would become like I don't know. I would become a hermit or some or a mystic or something. I think it would just completely change my whole foundation of of how I view reality. And that's like it's, that's it's, very interesting. That that you're you're raising a point that I hadn't really considered before. But there is some level of you know, uh, I don't know what the term is, but I'm guessing it would be like predeterminism or something oh, yeah. to that. Yeah, who is controlling that, and why have you been given the power to? you know, disrupt it. That is, that's have very guys, interesting. Have either of you guys seen devs? Yes. Mm. The Alex have, Garland show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they are absolutely monkeying around in that same ter- territory. And there. it, and it, and like, there's the one second projection scene and like everyone uh-huh. in the room completely loses their mind. They're right. like, Nope. Like, <laughs> fuck this. This is absolutely completely fucking terrifying because they're the for a little spoiler they're they're seeing on a screen every everyone in the room the screen is showing what they're going to do a second before it happens mm-hmm. and it completely like everyone completely loses their mind they're so upset about it it's so fucked up because they can't they understand that this thing is predicting literally everything they're doing a second before and it it just everyone loses it and i that would be me i would just completely lose it i would not be able to handle it um yeah it would it would just mess me up there's not this, i would not handle it well this reminds me of like when i was a kid and you know i was raised i wasn't raised religiously but my parent like we always went to church on sundays i always got the impression my parents were kind of going through the motion on this shit right mm-hmm. but you know we learned in in sunday school and in church that God always knows what uh, he always knows what you're going to do. You can't trick God. He, he knows what you're going to do at all times. And I, I specifically remember, I might've said this on the show before in some other conversation, but I remember like walking down the sidewalk of my street and thinking, well, God knows if I'm going to step on this crack in the sidewalk or that crack on the sidewalk. And so I remember trying to like, oh, this is where I would put my foot. And then at the last second change, <laughs> like trying to trick Psych God. God, I'm like seven yeah. years old Psych. trying to like, yeah, <laughs> that is that is so Wampler. Yeah. And and um, there was a certain satisfaction that went with it. But there was also <laughs> this like. Well, wait a second. Like, I don't know if that's true. And, and you know, in retrospect, that might have been like, you know, some of my first questioning of of uh, religion. And, you know, I am not a I'm the furthest thing from a religious person, not an atheist. But like, I, I just feel like. I don't know, I feel like if there's something out there, we have no we couldn't comprehend it to begin with. So all this stuff is like fun and games and. You know, but the reality of it would probably shatter your mind. I, I'm I'm having a realization. I should be doing this with my fucking shrink. 
but I'm, I'm having the realization <laughs> that this was probably like my earliest like rebellion against God I was trying to <laughs> trick him about sidewalk cracks. Um, <clears throat> so, but but you are right in devs like that 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 one second is is enough to to scare the shit out of them. Um, I don't think I don't think I would ever want to know the outcome of major things like that right i i don't uh or i would go in the the opposite direction and just go full nihilist with it and be like yeah like at a party be like all right i'm gonna shake all of your hands and tell you when you're gonna die like that would be (laughs) you know you know and i would just be like yeah fuck it i don't i don't know what to tell you that's 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 what this does and i'm telling you the truth you know that would be i can imagine that being kind of fun well so Something in a party trick sense. I knew I knew a guy once. uh, I'm sorry, I'm derailing here, but I knew a guy once. I I was in military school with him and he had been in another school before that where he was like piggybacking on another uh, another person's back. And he was at the top of a staircase and someone else ran up behind him and kicked him in the balls from behind. (laughs) And his balls, you know, like inside the balls, it's like. Those two little stems with like nerve centers at the end, like that's what at the inside of your balls. Uh You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Okay, those got tangled around each other. Like if someone flicks you in the nuts, that's just one of those. (laughs) So this is both of those like in a fucking pretzel nut. And and he fucking (laughs) he fell like fell down the, uh, the flight of stairs and then down another one and had to get one of his balls removed. Like one of the Damn. one of the the interior of the ball, whatever that is called. I'm sure one of our listeners will helpfully explain that to me. The testy. Um, um, now it's the the actual name for that, like nerve, and mm. the the ball of juice at the end, or whatever the fuck that. I'm not a you know. I just, <laughs> the ball, I'm the a ball of juice. That's, the, that's what they call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um. But he that whole half of his uh testicular sack was replaced with silicone mm-hmm. and he would do it. He, he could do a thing like he could, if he wanted to like pull his ball out and, and smash it as hard as he wanted to. And it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't do anything. And I was like, dude, if I were you, this would, this is the party trick to end all party tricks. I'd be like, go ahead, slam my fucking ball in that, in the, in the, in the refrigerator door. If it doesn't hurt me, you owe me 10 bucks. I would clean up in a scenario like this. <laughs> Anyway, I'm glad I told this story on the air. <laughs> it's who has the better party trick? Johnny Smith predicting when you're all going to die or, or ball. the guy with the immortal ball. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that I'd like to address is the feeling of responsibility that would come with this power. Right. So that's you you're either gotta do what like johnny tries to do and just isolate himself and by the way he would have loved covid like <laughs> covid covid would have been a godsend for johnny smith it's like oh just sorry nobody can touch each other and everybody's gonna be locked at home for for two years great news for me um but like he he can't help himself when he knows you know he he knows he could help that you know, there's a killer going around and he knows that you know if he doesn't uh, help that then he feels some responsibility because he knows he could help, right? It's kind of it's a Superman problem. It's like once you have the those powers, it's Spider Man with great power comes great responsibility. It's you know uh, 
would you feel at all? Do you think, you know, if you like legitimately had this, this power to touch an object or a person and see something, would you feel that, that draw of responsibility, like seeing a serial killer, you know, going out, you know, you know going out there and, and knowing you could stop, you know, the, the next person from dying. Like, would you, would you think about that? Oh, like incessantly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, I think that that would drive me crazy because you know, anything, any like, and where do you draw the line? Because, you know, Johnny typically sees like death and really awful things, but what if it were also just really benign things? Should you inform a person that, I don't know, like anything, like any negative thing <laughs> that you find from touching a person that's going to happen. Um, if you know, I mean, forget the fact that it's supernatural. Like if you, if you know that something bad is going to happen, uh, do you have a responsibility to either tell the person or to try to prevent it? Um, knowing that that might also cause other negative effects. And if you do have a responsibility, does it end at any particular point? Is it just death or murder or destruction, or is it literally any bad thing? Um, and I think that's what would really just absolutely drive me nuts and make me not want to touch any human being ever. Hmm. A fair response, I think (laughs) to the, the possibility of that. Right. I think most people would probably feel that way. Well, I, yeah, I would feel like it would have to be the the big stuff or else you're, you're just going to turn into his like joke version of uh, of the character on SNL. Oh, yeah. You know, where, <laughs> you know, where he's like telling people, he's like, don't do that. You're going to get an ice cream headache if you eat that ice cream too fast. You know, yep, there's got to exactly. be a line somewhere, you know. Got to be a line. Uh, but, but it's also it's worth talking about how the power is at least shown in the movie seem to be slightly inconsistent. Sometimes he sees a death. Sometimes he like that reporter that that's calling him out, you know, is, uh, you know, he like shames him, but like, it's not like anything he like, he, he knows like bad things that happened to him in his, in his past that he like keeps secrets and interesting. It's interesting to me. Like, do you think that he can command the powers? Like, does he have control over it? Is it just what pops into his mind or can he like actually, fish you know or is it a little bit like uh 11 and in, in stranger things you know we're able to wander around in the darkness until they find what they're looking for you know i mean it always seems like it's related to trauma or death right. or impending death and sometimes it's future sometimes it's like with the girl in the in the gazebo it's right. clearly not the future it's showing her last moments with dr Wezak, it's showing something from way in his past but also he says he knows where his mom is now now which right. is crazy um but it seems like at least for most of the film it feels like it's completely unbidden it's just like whatever gets shown gets shown but it always it it's always something i think it's in all cases there's violence involved um like either the person he's touching it's showing them dying or it's showing a death near them or a death of someone connected to them um, mm. like even the world war two flashback, it's like, yeah, people are getting killed all over and it's very traumatic. Um, even if it's not showing him or his mom dying. Um, well, and, but that's interesting too, because that's something that we would have no fucking knowledge of. Right. Oh, yeah, so, of course. So it's like, you know, but he is still the vessel, but you know, by touching the doctor, you know, that's how he gets that information. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying about like, 
that might paralyze you with, with the thought of, of like, Oh, you know, you know, I'm agnostic as well. It's like, I, but if I had that power and go, well, obviously I'm being shown something specific. You're not getting a rush of everything when you touch somebody, like it's only something that you can help. It's like, is there a quantum leap thing going on here? You know, somebody writing this, is there a a grander, you know, purpose for this? You know, it, it would really, it really would make me kind of question my my stances on on uh, uh, you know on that higher power thing, uh, especially if it worked just like it does in the the movie and in the book, you know, where you're you're getting shown very specific things, and all those things have something that he can act upon, right? Yeah. Well, do we have anything else we want to talk about in? Uh... In reference to the Dead Zone, I never saw the series. Have either of you guys seen the series? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think not. I finished it, but like I watched, I watched it when it was airing. It was, it's actually a, a wonderful setup for uh, for a series. And uh, the thing that I remember the most walking away from it was how because they cast uh, Sean Patrick Flannery as Stilson. But nice. they do kind of like what they did in Smallville, where they make like Lex Luthor and Superman like friends first. <laughs> um, and at the time, I'm like, this is bullshit. But you watch it and he does so well where you're like, by the time you get to the later seasons, like you kind of see how he grew into the character that that he was, you know, that he like it kind of goes into that whole nobody starts off bad. You know, you kind of yeah. become mm-hmm. that. Um and it's a really interesting thing. It's very much of its era and of its time, but I think that it, it's actually kind of a, uh, you know, it's wasted that there isn't a a uh, uh, a dead zone like reboot series out there because it feels like it's such a great setup for a uh, um, for a series. But I guess like just weirdly enough, thinking about it, like Poker Faces is kind of playing in the same territory. That's she doesn't true. touch somebody, but she just, she has that thing. She knows when somebody's lying yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, it's, it could be, it's not that big of a stretch to, you know, to say that that's supernatural, you know, it's just, you know, the people can read body language and there's a science to it now, but like the version that she has, it doesn't matter who's saying it or why there she's all, she's never wrong. You know, she knows when somebody is lying um you know and that that's working out well i don't know i i think that there's room for that i think there could be a really cool uh reboot of dead zone if somebody smart like a ryan johnson style uh person would come on and, and tackle it i did realize that um uh although i never really thought about this way the the tragic the tragically um i don't know the tragically defunct i guess um millennium mm. kind of had a similar thing going on frank black mm. Right. could see things as the killer saw them, although it was very abstract and it was kind of supernatural, but kind of an intuition thing. Um, but that was his whole shtick is like Frank Black is an FBI profiler, but like he goes to places and he gets these really weird visions and insights into what the killer is doing and why they're doing it. Um, and it, and it was kind of monster of the week for a while where it's like, what, what new crazy serial killer trying to bring about the apocalypse? <laughs> right. <laughs> like what's going on, Frank? Um, but that was kind of a similar space that he worked in. Yeah. I think that what it's, it, it speaks to the dead zone as a, um, as a property. It's so odd because it's such a great movie and, a, and it's a great adaptation and it's so well made 
and nobody fucking ever remembers it when they talk about <laughs> like their favorite Stephen King stuff. And it should be, it should be in the, it's definitely in the top 10% of, of Stephen King adaptations. But when you talk to people, like it's always that you have to remind them like, Oh, in the dead zone, you're like, fuck yes, of course the dead zone. I don't know why, why it is. And the same conversation can be said about the book, you know, where people the in this era, he was just writing, banger after banger you like he just back to back to back you know carried the stand salem's lot you know the dead zone and it's like but it always gets lost in conversation you know i don't know what it is about the story because it's so good and it had such a huge impact cultural impact we talked about the snl parody and all that Mm -hmm. everybody knew what that that parody was for you know and that was multiple years later it's like you know, I don't, I don't know why this title in particular, but it, there's just something baked into the dead zone where, like, people kind of forget about it. It's in its own dead zone. Yes, it's in a dead zone. Very true. I, I hosted a screening of this at the uh, Alamo Draft House a couple of years ago, and invited out a, a a number of friends to it, and many of whom were uh, my coworkers at the time, and they were, uh, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me. And, uh, I love them. I loved it just as much as I always have. There were other people in the audience who were clearly having a good time. But when I kind of talked to the people that I had brought with me who had never seen it before, um, a lot of them didn't like it. They were just kind of like, yeah, I was kind of (laughs) bored. And, and I was thinking maybe this, it it is a very mannered film and it, it feels like, I mean, it's definitely not rapid fire, you know, like you were talking about earlier, Josh, with the the way they cut trailers now. But this is this is sort of what I was getting at earlier when I asked, uh, do you think it would be a success today? And I, I don't I don't know if it would. I don't know if. I mean, obviously, it's been ripped off so many times, like the concept of it has been done to death. I don't know if it's been ripped off. I don't know if Stephen King originated it, but. I do think that if you showed it to like a modern younger audience today, they might shrug. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. So uh, I I tend to feel like that might be the mass reaction to it. Oh yeah. I think, yeah, as a, I don't know, maybe I, yeah, as a, do I think it would be like a widespread hit? No, I think that people would like it. I do think that people would find it maybe like you said, a little too, like it's, there's not there's not a lot of crazy paced. things happening. Yeah. Um there's not a lot of crazy stuff happening. And I think maybe um you know the point Eric was sort of making before or the question, you know, like why does it get lost? I think that um there is more spectacle in adaptations like The Shining. Um right. mm-hmm. The Dead Zone is just a little less focused on spectacle and like big things. You know, there are some sequences where violence occurs, but other than like the crazy scissors scene, there's not a, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like the ax in the door and sticking your face through <laughs> saying, here's Johnny. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that maybe just there are, there are more films, even, even something like, um, you know, silver bullet has the, 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 uh, bottle rocket in the eye and like, you know, just crazy stuff like that. That's a little more, uh, just exciting, I guess. Whereas dead yeah. zone is a little more cerebral. Hmm. Yeah. Could be. Well, I think we've about covered this one this time out, but uh, 
This is the time on the show, Josh, where we, you know, turn it over to you. Like, where can people find you? What are you working? Actually, what are you working on next? <laughs> well, I just finished uh, a game called Pentiment that came out yes. last year. And that is a narrative adventure game set in 16th century Bavaria. Gorgeous, kind of a, by the way. Kind of, thank you very much. It's kind of a murder mystery. Um, and, who is your lead uh, uh, art designer on that? Like, who do I credit with the look of that game? Hannah Kennedy. Good Lord. So I'm very, very happy because we just got nom- nominated for two BAFTA, BAFTA Game Awards. Nice. Which is great. Um, one for writing and one for art. So we're both very happy. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's a narrative adventure game. It's kind of meant for people who are not necessarily super hardcore gamers. It's more of a reading game, a story game with choice and consequence. And that was a real passion project. So um, that is the last thing I made. And now I am helping out at the studio. I'm Obsidian's studio design director. So we have other games going on here. (laughs) So I'm helping out with those. And I am thinking of what I want to do next. And uh, I have a little while to figure that out. And obviously it's a dark tower. Yeah, for sure. Of course. course. Announced here today on the KingCast. It's confirmed. It's happening. It's got a $700 million budget, folks. Let's get excited about it. Definitely uh, at Josh directly on Twitter about that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. I'm I'm joking. <laughs> Please do not do that. But we uh, we thank you so much for being here. This was it was a delight to to get to talk to you. And and I meant what I said earlier that that specifically Fallout New Vegas is a very very important game to me. And it, thank it, you. It's so an much. honor to speak to you today. Thank you. Many thanks to Josh Sawyer for joining us. A delight. You know, it's it's funny. We've hit like the string of episodes where we're getting like all of our like uh, ancillary nerdy shit out of the way. We've got to talk about Simpsons recently, Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. to talk about Fallout, which is uh, another shared passion that, that we have. So um, I hope we didn't overly nerd out on on Mr. Sawyer here. No, 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 no. I think I think he was I think he had a good time. And and who knows? Uh maybe we'll have him back, you know. Um always always a pleasure to talk the dead zone and uh I was I was particularly excited to talk to Josh, you know. But you, I mean, you and I both love New Vegas and everything Obsidian does. So that was uh that was really fucking cool. Yeah, I don't I didn't tell him, but I I camped out overnight to to pick up my copy of new Vegas back in the olden days where you didn't just automatically download every game to your gaming console. I went to GameStop with my pre-order and lined up like multiple hours early to make sure I got my copy because I was that addicted to the, the fallout series at that point. So I remember doing a midnight release for it, I think, but not, not camping out or anything. Yeah, that's what I meant. It was a midnight release. I got it it in like 9, 9 PM or something instead of just getting there. Cause I was needy. I had a pre-order. It was going to be there, but Sure. You know, what if they ran out, though? You didn't know. I had to play. I want to be playing it by 12.05 p.m. And I'm going to drive 100 <laughs> miles an hour all the way home. That was my plan. <laughs> yes. And uh, we're not done with the nerdy shit. Um, if I can tip our hand just a smidge. Mm. Um, we've got a little, uh, maybe a little X-Files related thing coming up pretty soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's coming up in a couple of weeks, I think. I think that yes, episode. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. No, we're, we're, uh, we're diving into all sorts of... <laughs> of random uh i don't know pools of nerdiness that surround the stephen king universe and there Mm -hmm. are a lot of them so so (laughs) everybody's gonna have have their chance to take a dip i think 
Um, what do we got coming up uh, next week in the main feed? Ooh, next week in the main feed, we have a director of a very good, very big, high-profile horror movie coming out maybe at the end of next week. You never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming in to talk The Shining with us. So uh, there, there are certain similarities between uh, this director's new movie and The Shining that uh, made it kind of impossible to pass up, you know, oh, yeah. kind of talk about both together. So, uh, so yeah, no, it, it's a really fun one. It's a little shorter than we normally do. The The guy was on, on the clock, but, uh, um, you know, you're still going to get, I think it was like just under an hour. So, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're still going to get uh, uh, some good conversation, and uh, it was just a pleasure to talk to this dude. Like he, uh, we were talking before we even started recording uh, today, actually, just about how how uh, great he was, and just how, yeah, how we you know, wish every, we had more time with him. <laughs> yeah, how every answer was thoughtful and and you know in depth, and it, there was nothing that felt like he's like, oh fuck, I've answered this thing a billion times, and so here's my pat answer. Everything sounds yeah. Sounded very good. It, it, you know, I don't know. I, I I'm a big fan of uh, uh, of this guy's work, uh, and uh, yeah, no, it was a pleasure. So that's all I can say. You, you probably figured out who it is. This is going to be one of those very easy to figure out mm-hmm. uh, guest teases. But uh, you know, I'll still let you connect those final dots. I will also point out that that is the first episode that we recorded after I got to Idaho. I have arrived for those keeping track of that journey, mm-hmm. um, and uh, had to use a mic that was not my own. Um, for that particular recording. So if it sounds a little different or I sound a little blown out or something, uh, please blame it on the microphone. And, um, those were just the circumstances that we were dealing with. Yes. The day. We're definitely uh, going to have to office space that microphone, like just blare up. Yeah. Damn. It feels good to be a gangster and, uh, and go, go ham on that in, in your Idaho field somewhere. Sorry, Becca. We'll buy you a new one. Yeah. Um, sorry, Becca. <laughs> uh, but yeah. uh, and uh, and of course it's Friday uh, over on our Patreon we will have a brand new bonus episode for you there um, we like to say it it sounds like a slogan but damn if it's not true if you're only listening to the main feed you're only getting half the show we put out two episodes a week one in the main feed one on the Patreon and uh, yeah and so there's plenty of really good stuff there there's exclusive commentaries that are that are there. There's uh, we released uh, one in the main feed to kind of give give you guys a little taste where we had Mike Flanagan do his Doctor Sleep director's cut commentary, but we mm-hmm. have one where it's Mike and Carla Gugino doing Gerald's game, only available on the Patreon. Uh, we have a bunch of regular kind of episodes. We have episodes that are hyper focused on certain areas of Stephen King fandom. Uh, we got all sorts of fun shit over there. Mailbags, uh, you know, pretty much anything you could want. If you are in the, the market for more KingCast, your appetite is not uh, satiated by just the main feed. Head on over to patreon.com slash the KingCast and sign up. Absolutely. And uh, I think that about does it for this week, yeah. doesn't it? It does indeed. So we'll see y'all back in the main feed next week for The Shining with the mystery horror director. The not-so-mystery horror director, yes. The quasi-mysterious horror director. Yes. All right, right, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.